Oh, how I missed that sound. That was the Shinkansen rolling out of Tokyo Station. And this week, we'll be talking about my trip out of Tokyo, as well as Laura's. And she'll be interviewing me on my one year working in the travel industry. Hello, and welcome back to episode three of Where Did Travel Go? I am currently in my remote studio in Nakamegaro, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Jessup Petrosky. How are you, Jessup? Hey, Laura. Take three. Full disclosure, take three here on the intro. (laughs) No, we don't need to tell everybody that. (laughs) Hey, we keep it real here. All right. How are you feeling, Laura? It was a long holiday weekend. Yeah, great. I've been on a little trip up to Ibaraki, um, and I know you've also been away. So can you, can you tell people Ibaraki. where Ibaraki is? People who might be listening who don't know where or what Ibaraki is. So Ibaraki is a different prefecture within Japan, and it's northeast of Tokyo. Um, it's a fairly large prefecture, so the the bottom end would be maybe just. 45, 50 kilometers north, and then the top end would be, oh, I don't know, 100 plus kilometers north of Tokyo. All right. What were you doing up there? So I have been um, house hunting. You we touched that be- in the last episode. Yeah, we touched briefly on it. Um, so my plan is to look at the possibility of moving out of Tokyo given the coronavirus situation on my business and how expensive rent is. So um, everybody knows, right, you work in travel, coronavirus has decimated everything you have. So this is the sad reality now. Um, So, yeah, looking for somewhere cheaper to live, but also with a good business opportunity for the future. So trying to combine kind of... uh, what do we say? Risk assessment now with future opportunities. Nice, nice. And so you're looking at some old Japanese houses up there? Yeah, with a view to living in it, renovating it and turning it into either a guest house or some form of glamping site or some workshop space, studio. Who knows? We're just out searching. Love it. Love it. And you found yourself out at sea as well, I heard. I did. I went fishing <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> and I caught two fish, two pie, which is uh, in English they are red red snapper or red sea bream. Okay, nice. And so this, was, this was not on your former yacht, correct? <laughs> correct, correct. This is on somebody else's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hang out with you more. You, you got all the connections with people with yachts. So, uh, all right. You always be friends with boats in life. You do. I agree. <laughs> so, um, yeah, tell me, tell me about your trip to Sado Island. You talked about it on the last episode. You, you explained the ride you were going to go on, the boat trip. How you were going to be out in the, um, the fields doing the harvest. How was it? Yeah, that was the plan, you know, and just like, uh, so on episode two, I had touched upon this and just like the, um, the plane trips from Taiwan to Okinawa that never land. I, I did never land on Sado, actually. Oh, Jessup. <laughs> what happened? How close did you get? You jinxed me. You did mention this. Yeah, so I was um, I was on my way up to Sado, and I had to take the Shinkansen from Tokyo to Niigata City, 
which is about a two-hour trip. And when I got to Tokyo Station and got on the train, it really hit me hard that, you know, typically this is the, one of the most traveled seasons in Japan and the trains are full. And uh, when we got on the train, there were five people uh, in our car on a double-decker Shinkansen, no less. And so I thought, uh-oh, this is not good. Like, uh, you know, people are, are really staying at home, not traveling out of the city. And I, I had heard that a lot of people said, you know, it's probably not a good idea uh, to leave Tokyo, maybe go into an island like so. You might not be as well received as you had, you had hoped. And so, you know, I was taking every precaution, went to the doctors previously, got checked and had my mask. I was ready to go. But uh, about halfway up, I just I pulled an audible. In, in American football, we call it an audible when you change the plan uh, really quickly on the fly. And I decided not to go to Sato Island, uh, stayed in Niigata City um, yeah, and, and had a pretty good time. I mean, the weather wasn't that great, but it was nice to get to a different place. Uh, went up the coast about an hour north of Niigata City to a place called Murakami, um, which gets no love, no attention, but it's an absolutely gorgeous uh, stretch of coastline where you can oh, take never a, heard of yeah, a very small train that goes up and uh, hugs along the coast and the mountains there. It's gorgeous, but um, it was raining, so we didn't get to go to the beach. Instead, we ended up at a salmon museum. So That's we went to a salmon museum. So, you know, from Sato Island to Niigata to Murakami, and, and in the end, we... Uh, we enjoyed some smoked salmon <laughs> in Murakami. So you in, never know. You've yeah. got to be flexible these days with travel. Yeah, you have. You absolutely have. In fact, we only um, planned to go out to Ibaraki for one day. We almost had the opposite experience to you. The weather was beautiful. We felt quite comfortable. <laughs> and we decided to extend the trip and make it even longer. So I think we're going to find now that travel but you know especially in different prefectures of japan or whatever country you're in it's really going to depend on the region the local communities that you go to who is welcoming and who is not for a while who feels psychologically safe as the traveler yeah. and as the residents living there and so it's just kind of a a new world and you know the good thing is you know you know where a lot of people may go to niigata and then eventually to sado now they might be diverting to places like murakami that haven't gotten the attention previously so you know it might be a good thing there might be a silver lining through all this very true um one of the areas we went to to look at one of the houses was kasumigara lake which okay. is about 60 kilometers north of tokyo it's absolutely beautiful it's the second biggest lake in japan and people go there to do fishing bird watching there's some beautiful boats that go out on the lake and do sailing trips. Boats with huge sails, so not your traditional um, motorboat. Gorgeous, mostly farming around there. And we noticed there was a lot of cyclists out. So people were enjoying the vacation time, but I think they were doing more of the outdoor activities type things. So the cycle paths around the lake were actually quite busy. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, so yeah. I think there, there's a lot going on, but it's just uh, it's taking a different shape than it was uh, previously. So this is kind of the new reality of travel. And I guess that's probably a nice segue into our our travel insight, two travel insights from each of us. Uh, do you want to go? For yeah, go on, then I can. Um, 
My first insight is kind of related, actually, to what I've been doing this week. I've been reading a lot of articles um, with, with the idea to try and find some property that is, has an, a business opportunity in the future. Remote working is something that's been on my mind. Um, people are, well, everyone is remote working at the minute. And the concept in Japan, historically, it's not been popular at all. I mean, you all know this. You've worked in Japan for a long time. The idea of working outside of the office did not exist until um, coronavirus. So, yeah, an interesting statistic that I read was two years ago, 23% of Tokyo's working population were kind of interested in the idea of moving out of the city. Okay. More to the countryside areas. Now, the percentage is 49.8% of Tokyo residents. Wow, wow. And I bet that number is going to keep increasing the longer that people are realize that they can't get, leave Japan and uh, that they're, you know, they're basically stuck in their city uh, indefinitely. I agree. And also, I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that remote work or telework, as we call it here, has suddenly become acceptable because it's, it's been forced on. So now that it's acceptable, people have got their heads around it. And now they can start to think more about slightly alternative ways of living. I love it. I love it. That's, that's great insight. How about yourself? Where's your mind been on the idea of teleworking over the years? Well, I've actually been talking about this for for a couple years now and, and wondering why everyone flies, you know, from all corners of the globe to a remote island in Indonesia called Bali. You might have heard of it. <laughs> oh, I've, I've heard of it. You I've know, been there. I mean, I've done some teleworking there. <laughs> if you really think about it, like there's no city uh there to speak of it's you know just literally an island with some nice beaches and jungle and it's turned into a a worldwide destination that people fly to to get away from cities and enjoy the beach and they don't just go there on vacation most people do go there and stay and telework and now there's all the remote workspaces where you can get a membership and stay for months up in ubud and um, i've always wondered why don't people fly to Japan and do the same thing? We have beautiful mountains and oceans and everything. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a great, a great thing that you're researching and it's probably about to burst here, the opportunity. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I, I think one of the reasons why people haven't considered Japan as a destination is, and without doing any research, you know, just being the, someone that sits at home on the couch and starts thinking about where could I go and tell you work? I think people automatically try and think of cheaper countries because they're going to think of longer term rentals for like a month or so. So Bali and Indonesia are known to be cheap locations, or at least that's what the perception is. True. I think the reality is it's actually not that cheap anymore. Anymore, yeah. But with Japan, people's perception is, oh, that's quite an expensive place to go because we always think about um, the prices in Tokyo. But I don't think people realize that eating out in the countryside and staying in the countryside can actually be very, very affordable. Extremely. It it is crazy. I mean, even eating in Tokyo, uh, a lunch here is pretty affordable. But yeah, you you bring up a good point. And, And going out and looking at properties, I think that you've seen the potential of 
what could be in terms of affordable accommodations too. I think also Japan still a lot of hotels here are quite high in their price range, uh, no matter what yeah. they're offering. Uh, I, can, I, can, I can confirm that from my last couple of days in Ibaraki, yes. <laughs> right, so uh, I think if someone can crack the market, that's a great opportunity. Okay, that's Yeah, great. so I think, I think it comes down to education then. It's yeah. whoever, whoever does start this up more seriously just need to think, okay, I actually need to educate people that it is an affordable option, and that is what will bring people in the long term. I love it. Let's do it. Let's all educate. Um, okay, give insight. us an insight, Jessup. I don't have any data insight this week. I brought some doom and gloom insight last week, so I'm going to go a little bit of a different direction. Something that I've been really fascinated by is the logistics of traveling and traveling again, which a lot of people aren't thinking about. Um, so with travel halted, what happens to the airplanes? Uh, this is something I don't think many people are really taking into account. Um, hmm. I just wa- well, I just watched a documentary on um, Channel News Asia. Uh, they did a documentary called Grounded. It's on YouTube. You can go and find it. It's about a 45-minute long documentary. And, of course, they focused on Southeast Asia, Singapore, Malaysia, and Philippines in this documentary. Um, But this is something happening all around the world is that the reality is commercial aircraft around, I think it's around 75 or 80 percent of them are on the ground right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's about 18 or 20,000 planes. And so the problem is, um, you know, the infrastructure is not built to park this many planes. Those many planes should be in the sky at one time. So, you know, one of the problems is where do we park the planes? Uh, it another... actually mean there's not enough parking bays for them no, at the airport. No, no. So they are actually, it's it's unbelievable. So Alice Springs, in the middle of the outback Australia, you may have heard of it. It's just a little, uh, you know, hole in the wall place. They probably get one or two flights a week, uh, little puddle jumper aircraft. They are now storing, I think it's around 30 commercial airlines for Singapore, Qantas, and maybe someone else. They're flying in the A380 double-deckers into Alice Springs right now and storing them out in the middle of the desert because there's not enough parking space at the commercial airports. Wow. It is wild. There's There's some cool footage of them flying into the outback. And of course, the locals have never seen huge jets before flying in that airport. So that's... uh. Now you might ask, why are they flying them down to Alice Springs? Well, one of the problems that the aircraft uh, or the aircraft encounter is while they sit on the ground is uh, moisture is a big threat. Mm-hmm. And so if you're in Singapore, Southeast Asia, um, and they're sitting there too long, moisture can uh, damage the interior of the plane really quickly, the seats. Um, they can uh-huh. also damage the engines. And so one of the things that airlines have to do now is they literally put in saline packs. You know the little saline packs that you get yeah, when you buy a snack. You get a snack or even your electronics. You know you don't want that to corrode, and so they have to put in saline packs every week or couple weeks to keep the moisture out of the engines, the seats, mm-hmm. and everything. And they do this for you know thousands and thousands and thousands of planes every week. And so it's a fascinating documentary. Wow. Um, the other thing was keeping the animals and the rodents out of the aircraft. And they literally have to tape or cover every crease and opening on the airplane so that 
a bird doesn't get in and lay a, a, a nest uh, in the engine or a mouse doesn't get in and start gnawing away at the wires or even as small as an ant getting in the smallest sensor and being able to block that. So whenever they do uncover their aircraft and the plane goes to fly, if even the smallest thing like an ant is covering a sensor, it could crash the plane. I mean, it's just unbelievable the amount of maintenance that is going into just maintaining planes that are parked and not even flying. And so go, go to YouTube, uh, put in, it's called grounded by uh, channel news, Asia. I think you'd be fascinated by it. Oh, I'll watch that. And let's put a link to that as well in this. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll, we'll put a link on this episode so people can go check it out. Fascinating. Yeah. Great insight. Thank you. My, uh, my next one is semi-related to that and also last week's insight. It's to do with Qantas. Um, last week I mentioned Eva Air from Taiwan were offering those uh, flights that, don't really go anywhere. <laughs> right. Well, they go they go somewhere. They just don't land, or at least they, just they don't, don't land. La- they don't land where they go. They land where they took off. <laughs> yeah. So Qantas uh, from Australia are now going to be doing the same thing. Um, they have put a really nice flight path together. They're flying to Antarctica, oh, and then yeah, they're dubbing theirs as the world's most scenic flight. Wow got seven of them scheduled in november and they'll be departing from sydney melbourne adelaide brisbane and perth it'll be a 13 hour round trip okay so i mean that's a substantial amount of time to be on a plane i know when i do long haul my back hurts i feel very dehydrated my skin's personally i'm not sure if i'd want to do a 13 hour flight well, I'm sure for this kind of thing, though, they, they might have like sessions where they encourage people to stand up and walk around and look out the windows or something. Is there any details to what would be part of this? Well, they need, they need to be socially distanced as well, don't they? So I'm not sure uh, about them walking around. Um, but anyway, this 13-hour round-trip flight starts at 1200 Australian dollars for an economy seat and 8000 Australian dollars for business class. Goodness. Okay. <laughs> and you want to hope you get a window seat on that flight. Yeah, there, actually, there wouldn't be any point to even sell anything but window seats, would there? There wouldn't. <laughs> I mean... There wouldn't. Well, this should be interesting. I I want to follow this and see how it goes. I'm sure there'll be some interesting video that comes out uh, later. I think there will be. And it'll be interesting to see which airline does the next trip and where they decide to go. Yeah, true, true. You know, you could probably even, you know, from Japan, you know, how long would it take you to fly north to see the Northern Lights, right? I'm sure I'm actually kind of surprised there's not a Northern Light flight right now. Coming soon. Oh, should we invest in aircraft as well as? How, how much do the plane cost these days? They must be going pretty cheap. They must be. I know private <laughs> jets are private jets are selling and renting really well. They're at a premium right now, but uh, oh, yeah, right. maybe we could pick okay. up a few commercial. You know, there's commercial uh, one, yeah. Hey, you know the speaking of Qantas, they just retired their last seven forty seven, and that went to the desert in California to be scrapped. I mean, maybe we could make an offer to uh to rent it for a few more months and and do something like that 
Yeah, and you know, if we figure out that we can't fly it, we can just turn it into a teleworking space. <laughs> oh my God, there's so much possibility. <laughs> there's so much to do. I'm serious, actually. <laughs> <laughs> this is the worrying thing. <laughs> Whew, all okay, right. And do you have another insight for us? One more. These these are both fun. They're kind of two and one. So, have you heard about Play New Zealand? No. So Play New Zealand is a campaign that the New Zealand Tourism Board is doing right now. They've created an online hub of 18 different 180-degree videos. Mm-hmm. They're presented to guests um, as a video game. Um, so basically, you know that like gamers, ga- you know, watching people play video games has become a big thing now on YouTube and on a platform called Twitch. Have you heard okay. of this? I'm not, so, but you know I'm behind the times of technology things. Yeah, so just like watching people play sports, now there's esports and people that get online to watch other people play video games online. I mean, it's it is crazy, right? So it's a huge, huge industry now. And so what New Zealand did was they took a lot of their their video footage that they're probably planning to use for campaigns to come visit, and mm-hmm. they overlaid some graphics and they put a a gamer in her, you know, in her uh, game center and put the camera on her and it made her look like she's playing the video, uh, which was just shot for a campaign. And so it's a really cool thing. We'll put a link in the podcast where you can go and you can experience New Zealand as if it was uh, gamified. Wow, that is cool. Very cool. And then one more to, to kind of piggyback off of that. I love this. This I, I forget where I saw, but it this uh, subtitle grabbed me. It says, grab your virtual loincloth and get ready <laughs> for some mixed reality action. Tarzan VR is coming soon. <laughs> um, this sounds really dodgy. <laughs> Tarzan VR. Um, we're also going to put some links in the podcast uh, description. I don't know if we should for that one. <laughs> I don't think you literally have to wear a loincloth, but yeah, that was that was that was the catchphrase, which made me uh, read further into the article. But basically, there's going to be a Tarzan VR experience where if you have a VR headset, you can go swing through the jungles and present pre pretend that you're Tarzan or what was Tarzan? What was the lady's name in in Tarzan? Is it Jane? Maybe it was Jane. I think it, it was Jane. Jane. Yeah, so Jane. You, you can be Tarzan or Jane in a virtual uh, jungle swinging experience, vine swinging experience. So I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> so, um, for all these VR type experiences, do you need to own a VR headset to be able to participate in them? Well, you can you can get the headsets or you can do something as simple as buy what's called Google Cardboard and you can slide your your mobile phone into the cardboard and then that cardboard mm-hmm. is like cardboard glasses that you can put on and you can experience it as well. It's not quite Let's a... put a link to that in as well, because for people okay. like me that are not as familiar with VR type things. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we, we can do that. And I think you are going to see, I think the price point for these are typically starting at four or $500 up to a thousand or two. They're just like a computer, but they are going to be coming down these headsets. Mm-hmm. And I think this coronavirus situation is actually going to make all of the manufacturers of these kind of products fast track their roadmap, which they probably had planned for three to five years to be like 12 to 18 months now. And we're going to see a lot of cool type of wearables coming out for these kind of experiences. 
Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, wow, that is that is a lot of insight. And yeah, we'll provide links to all of these in the uh, the podcast description. Excellent. All righty. Well, let's take a quick break, and then uh, we'll come back. And I think you're going to interview me. I believe I am going to interview you. Yes. All righty. Okay. So, Jessup, are you ready to be interviewed? I am. Bring it on. And <laughs> <laughs> um, last week, I told everyone a little bit about where I'm from, Chester, and I shared yep. a couple of uh, interesting tidbits. How about you? Where are you from? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Okay. Well, I don't think I have as interesting a story as you had about the Welsh visiting uh, Chester, but. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, I'm from the United States, from the state of Ohio, which in Japanese means good morning. And so when I tell people here, I always get Ohio, Ohio, and a, a quirky little laugh. People also, th- also think it's Iowa, which is in the middle of the U.S., or Idaho, which is famous mm-hmm. for potatoes, which is in the northwest. So Ohio is located uh, kind of mid-northeast between Chicago and New York, right under Canada on one of the five Great Lakes. Um, it's the birthplace of aviation. The Wright brothers are from Dayton, Ohio, where I was born. Um, and so that's kind of, uh, their claim to fame as well as, uh, Thomas Edison, George Clooney, and most recently NBA star LeBron James grew up in my near hometown of Akron. Oh, wow. And do you have any personal connections to any of these people? Um, not that I know, not that I know of. Um, I might be related to the Wright brothers in some way, but I'll have to dig a bit I'd be, deeper. I'd be more interested in um, an introduction to George. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh, Halle Berry as well for all the gentlemen out there listening. So that's kind of my hook. <laughs> okay. And then when did you come to Japan and what actually brought you here? Sure. Yeah, I first came to Japan in the summer of 2001. Uh, my father actually got relocated out here for a consulting job, just kind of randomly uh, was asked to come out for, I believe, it was four to six months. Um, and then when my summer holiday came at university, he said, why don't you come out and join me, spend the mm-hmm. summer together? You'll probably you'll probably never get the chance to visit Japan again. And uh... <laughs> was he in Tokyo for that? Yeah, he was, in, he was in Tokyo. So I came over. I actually said, no, no, thanks. <laughs> that was, I mean, I was, you know, in college. I was in my 20s. I, I had, I thought, the best summer job in the world. I was working at a swimming pool company out on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, uh, which was really nice. I lived by the beach. And uh, being someone from Ohio that doesn't have an ocean, I thought this is the best life. And I was earning earning my keep, you know, making some money. And I just said to my dad, I was like, I, you know, what am I going to do in Tokyo? Don't know anybody, don't know anything. Um, but he said, you know, come on out here, twisted my arm and I came and uh, I actually didn't like it <laughs> at first. What? <laughs> so I came out. My dad, picked, yeah, my dad picked me up, you know, brought me back. He lived right in the heart of the city, really nice apartment. And, uh, he went to work all day and I just, like I said, I didn't really prepare. I didn't study or have any interest in Japan at that time. And so I spent a lot of time walking around, riding my bike, um, looking and waiting for someone to say, hi, how are you? Where are you from? I obviously stick out here, at least the neighborhood where I was, there were no foreigners. So 
um, I quickly found that people weren't so open to talking to strangers. You know, mm-hmm. if, we were in the, if we were in the U.S. and we saw someone walking around who, you know, probably wasn't from that area, we'd probably say, hi, how are you? Are you lost? You need help? Uh, mm. hopefully, hopefully that's what they'd say. But um, I found it to be rather lonely, actually, while I was on my own here. I didn't have any friends. And so um, it was hard to adjust. But eventually I did meet some locals that spoke a bit of English and welcomed me into their home and showed me about the way Japanese live and work. Um yeah, it was fascinating. And then, long story short, uh, my dad ended up staying. His his short consulting project l- went from four months to four years. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it kind okay. of took him that long to uh, grasp what they were consulting on and to implement it. So came back to visit a few summers later, and then the seeds were planted, and Asia was you know, firmly in my blood, and there was no turning back after that. So. That's, so uh, what, what year was it when you officially kind of set your own roots down in yeah. Japan then, rather than just coming to visit your dad? Yeah, yeah. So in 2005, about a year after I graduated, no, two years after I graduate, graduated college, I actually got a job offer to go to Thailand, Bangkok, Thailand. And so I went down there and I worked for an English uh, training company. Mm-hmm. Uh, started off as a teacher and then I worked my way up to like a corporate instructor and then became a manager, uh, published a magazine. Uh, I think I ended my term there working with the HR department, but a kind of a hodgepodge of uh, different roles as the company was growing from uh, a few centers in Bangkok to I think there were three or four countries when I left and a thousand people from 80 people to a thousand in three years. And so I really got an opportunity to work in a business that was, you know, in kind of hyper growth mode and, and, and get to work with the leadership there. So that was, that was good. Three years in Thailand. Uh, then I went back to the U S actually for a year, right after, yeah. Lehman, right after Lehman shock, thinking I would, uh, you know, kind of go back and re-ingratiate myself into the real world, which was a bad idea at that time because nobody was hiring. <laughs> and uh i actually spent like a year traveling around the the country getting some consulting work for websites and web services and uh found myself then in between some jobs and i was in wyoming uh visiting a friend and i loved it so much that i ended up staying and renting a cabin and kind of disconnecting a bit and doing a lot of camping i worked at a microbrewery for a while um, and then just by chance, I had opened up my email and I think it was in a spam folder. There was a newsletter from Tokyo that I had subscribed to probably when I was visiting my dad uh, about a company, a publishing and tech company here that was doing some interesting work, did some research, got on LinkedIn, found the CEO, had a Skype call and opportunity struck. And he said, I need someone on the ground here in a couple months to do sales. Would you be willing to come back or come to Japan and uh join my operation and so i did that in uh the fall of 2009 okay yeah. and you've been here ever since so 11, 11 years now uh yeah i've been here you know i try to get out as much as possible but uh yeah i've been living and working here now for 11 years which is crazy to say wow so we know that you've been in travel very recently, but can you just give us a little bit of an insight into what you've primarily done in in those first ten years? Uh, I don't think there's I don't think there's any one primary. Yeah, so I started my first job was doing adver- advertising sales for a, a magazine, 
So I got into the the media world, print and web a bit. Um, so I learned about sales and marketing, advertising, how that all works. Um, after that, after the 2011 tsunami and earthquake that happened here, a lot of that work had kind of like what happened now to travel. A lot of the advertising came to a grinding halt for about six to eight months. People wouldn't was kind of taboo to pay for advertising in such a uh, tragic situation and so we were our team was uh disassembled we were all let go and i did some volunteer work for eight months in tohoku kept me around kept me in japan uh, mm-hmm. 2012 came around and i took a bit of a break went back to southeast asia and i ran into a japanese uh ceo of a tech startup that was down there scoping out uh offices for a new business and so he was based in Tokyo, had a startup and said, hey, why don't you come back with me and join my company in 2012? And so I did that as the first foreign hire for this company of 50 people. Uh, they were doing a job board, much like mm-hmm. you had mentioned, you were working in recruiting. They were building a platform for job seekers and recruiters, kind of a high end job market uh, membership site. Mm-hmm. So then I jumped into learning about running a web business, you know, building it from from literally zero customers, zero visitors to a couple thousand or over 300,000. I think we had registered at the time when I left uh, learning all about uh, online marketing operations of the team uh, between Japan and Singapore. And so really digging my teeth in tech a lot more i went to school for tech so it was nice to be applying what i went to school for a bit after that i jumped into augmented reality or ar worked for a startup out of new zealand that had an office in japan Um, after a few years they retracted back to new zealand i got picked up by a big company here called rocketen worked in the e-commerce world as well as more mixed reality augmented reality projects there um, and then I went to another company called Cyber Agent, where we were doing a lot of uh, CGI work or making uh, what's called like a digital twin of people. Uh, a oh. bit scary concept, but it's it's becoming more. Right, I like um, this idea. I'd you like do. to have a little Laura twin around the house. You do need a Laura twin, so we did that for a bit, and then I got picked up by CWW last year and said, "All right, I've." picked up all these skills which i believe are going to be applicable for the for travel now and the future of travel and so you know jumping into the travel industry was a big change but actually i'm kind of looking over the same stuff that i've been doing over the last really eight to ten years Mm -hmm. and was that a conscious decision that you really wanted to work into travel or was that just something that you fell into because an opportunity came up and it just so happened to be in the travel industry well, I mean, it's kind of like you, you had mentioned last week on, on your uh, episode two of your interview that, you know, you were working in the corporate world, everything was, was nice, but, you know, something was missing and travel was always in your blood and, you know, the opportunity came or I think you had that discussion with your mom or something like that, that made you go and start your own, which was amazing. I had had Connect Worldwide or CWW, this company I'm currently at. Uh, on my radar for years and I've been watching Mm -hmm. them and really admired what they were doing and the the people and the ownership there and I I always called it my dream job if I could ever land it and so I was very persistent 
not annoying, persistent. I don't know. Maybe the CEOs <laughs> would tell you otherwise. Um, and I just, you know, opportunity came last summer and they, they called me in to actually do a consulting project for a month or two, which led me uh, to getting the offer in September. So, yeah, at that point, I thought, OK, this is it. I've broken into the industry, the dream job world. And so now let's uh, let's hopefully ride this out over the next 20, 30 years and ride off into the sunset, maybe on a yacht. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully so, you're riding and not friends. Right? Yeah. So the travel industry was always kind of a dream. Then it became kind of a thing I was chasing and trying to figure out how I could position myself and the skills and experiences to make it of value to the industry and I think this is about the time that I met you so this would be yeah. going back to last July July 2019 feels and like eons a, ago it does it does <laughs> I just moved to Tokyo and there was a big conference web in travel WIT yeah um and I had gone to it and I remember meeting you there and you were very excited. You just joined the travel industry and you were quite open. You said, I don't know that much about it yet, but I'm in it. I'm so happy to be here. I'm working for this fantastic company. I'm going to be able to implement some technology into their systems. And here I am. <laughs> and you were like, yeah, you were on top of the world then. I was, I was beaming, you know, I met you and then I met, you know, a lot of good, uh, shout out to Kei Shibata as well, one of the, the co-organizers um, of, of WIT, you know, for, I had actually met Kay, I think a year prior as well, and he also got me really interested in, in the travel industry, and so he invited me to this conference, and you know, I met you, I met some good people like Jeff Lewis, who will probably be on the show here in a couple of weeks, let's hope, uh, Jeff Pond, who is yeah. Her, currently stuck in korea shout out to you jeff uh i'm still looking for that island between japan and korea which requires no visas that we could meet on <laughs> um, uh, jeff did a great job up there he really inspired me i was like these are the people i want to be around and working with moving forward and so yeah i was i was a bit lost to be honest and there was a lot of terminology being thrown around i was just like what the hell are they talking about <laughs> but uh it was great. Just throw me into the fire. And, it, you know, it was it was wonderful. It was it was a great conference. Um, yeah. And we had a great karaoke night when we all went out after. Well, the best part about it, yeah, was after day two was the little izakaya outing, uh, the, the epic karaoke night and then getting caught out in the rain and doing a, a photo op with Hachiko statue by Shibuya Station absolutely soaked to the bone there was no reason to be out there but uh, I think it was Jeff Lewis that was just adamant about getting that Hachiko sh shot that night <laughs> He was. I remember. I remember very well. Maybe, maybe, maybe we, I can dig up that picture and we can put a, a link to the photo as well in the podcast. <laughs> and uh, I know you were on a high because you just joined the industry. I yeah. think I was too because I just moved to Japan and set up my third Hello Tours company. Yeah. Singapore had really taken off. We were two years in. Hong Kong was doing exceptionally well. And it was, it was just as the protests were starting in Hong Kong. So we were still kind of at the very, very top. And then certainly for me, since, since that time last year, so since June, July, that's when the downward 
slope started for us. We had the Hong Kong protest, which um, took away about 50% of our business. And then, and then obviously coronavirus hit as well, which wiped out Hong Kong, Singapore and, and Tokyo. So exactly. Well, yeah, I I had written an article about this called from the peak to the valley one year working in the travel industry. And I, you know, most people have to start, start from the bottom and work their way up, which, you know, you, you kind of did there uh, with your, your business. And so I, I had jumped in, I had, Okay, I'm in the travel industry, which was at an all-time high. I was working for a company with people that I had admired and, you know, been pursuing. And I was, it was it. It was it for me. It was the pinnacle. That sucks because you know what happens at the pinnacle. You know, there's <laughs> only one place to go from the pinnacle and that's down. Um, so now we're in the valley. We are in the valley. But kind of a good thing i don't know if it's good or bad but we're all in it together <laughs> you know i didn't fall off the cliff on my own i'm not down here alone just like uh you know in remorse and uh so here we are yeah i, I would say um i think it's worse to be in the value when in the valley when you're the only one in it i mean it makes make you personally feel worse it's in a way it, it's nice to, I don't want to use the word nice because this is not a nice situation and people are struggling and I've got, you know, I know people that can't pay their rent anymore and they've got families to look after. So it isn't nice, but when a lot of people are in it at the same time, you know, you're not the only one and you know, there's other people going through the same hardship and, you know, hopefully everyone does get to move out of it together as well. Yeah. I, I had, spoken about this uh on monday i was interviewed by a woman that does sustainable um tourism consulting and i said i had heard from someone else that really touched on this point and it made a lot of sense she goes you know what for the first time probably in human history or at least you know modern modern day day history we're all everyone on earth is in this together like there's literally no one that's not affected by this um, and she goes, in a way, it's a bit comforting. And she goes, I know it's uncomfortable, but it's a bit comforting to know that literally everybody here in every industry is being af- affected in some way. And so we're all in it together. We're all moving forward together. And, uh, you know, some are going to come out of it. Some are not, unfortunately. Like, you know, there's going to be a lot of businesses that are lost. Um, mm. But I think there's going to be a lot of... Uh, you know, companies that do get through it are going to come out different. And then there will be new companies and opportunities that appear from it. So I don't know, I guess, you know, it's all, it's all cyclical in a way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So talking about new companies and new ideas coming out of this, you were quite quick actually to embark on a a new project when coronavirus hit a digital project, which you did was related to japan and ireland yeah. um I first question would you have done that anyway if it if coronavirus wasn't here or was that really instigated by the coronavirus situation and just tell us a little bit more about you know what you did and why you did that yeah um i don't know if i would have done it at least not the way that we had executed it had this not happened you know because we were all just chugging along doing our things there was no need to stir the pot and innovate and do things that um you know were not unnecessary so 
yeah, this project came about because we couldn't travel and I got contacted by some people in Ireland who wanted to share the beauty of their country with the rest of the world and give some hope. And so they contacted me working for a company that is called Connect Worldwide. They thought, oh, that's perfect. And they had known me personally as well. So we had come up with the idea. This was at the time when online events and conferences or webinars were still a little bit new or you know, people, people weren't really embracing them as much in March and April. Um, and I came up with the idea to basically put an online event together where we could showcase Ireland, make it an artistic experience, uh, what turned out to be a musical experience as well. And so we did a one hour production and documentary of uh, Ireland and Japan. It was called Run, which was produced by an artist in Kyoto called Akira Miyanaga. Um, so yeah, we showed this on June 29th on a platform called Zyko. Uh, it was later then shown in July by the Ireland, Japan chamber of commerce on a closed event. And we are currently in talks with other platforms and outlets about where we can maybe show this. The, the video is uh, privately kept right now. We're not putting it out in the public, uh, just quite yet. We want to see what we can do with it and maybe build upon it moving forward. So we produced this event, this content. It was kind of a seed which got a lot of really good uh, feedback. Uh, we got some press. There was an article that came out last week out of New York City uh, from Irish media called uh, Irish Central is the media. Uh, I'll provide a link in the podcast where you can go and read about the article too. So yeah, it's quite remarkable that little idea that we had came together. I think there were 15 people that worked on the project. Uh, people have heard about it from as far as New York City to, of course, my, back in my hometown. It was on a local TV talk show. They were talking about it. Um, the lady in Hiroshima that interviewed me earlier in the week as well, she had also picked up on it. So I think the biggest thing is that if you, you start to plant some seeds, you start to work with people and you put the content out there, uh, you know, it's amazing how far it can reach people now. Mm. I mean, it does sound amazing. And I think a lot of people might use the word lucky, but knowing you, I actually <laughs> think you are always networking and you are always talking to people. And, um, you know, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about your jobs, oh, I just happened to bump into, you know, the CEO of this company here and I got this job or just happened to see an email and this guy, <laughs> you know, oh, just relocate yourself over and there's a job here for you. <laughs> but these things don't just happen <laughs> quite like that. I know, there's, I know there's a lot more that goes on in the background and it is about keeping up your contacts. Um, oh, so that's yeah. maybe a lesson that comes out of this as well. Yeah, I definitely have a bag that I carry around with me with a lot of seeds. Uh, and I just try to drop them off and plant them as many places I can and come back and water them. So, uh, but it's really true. I think, yeah, a bit of it is timing luck, but if you don't plant the seeds and you don't be persistent and you don't kind of position yourself, yeah, the opportunity won't come. So, well, you know, let's see. Yeah, let's see moving forward, too. And do you think you might do another one of these projects, maybe looking at other countries or other Boy, cities? I would, I would love to. The original thought was to do one a month and <clears throat> be able to just line them up 
and and to try to do some kind of connection between Japan and another, another country, obviously, because we're based here and do kind of a cross-cultural exchange. Because one of the things that we found out that was so good about the Ireland-Japan project was it wasn't just an Ireland project. I mean, we literally had people from both sides. We had a little uh, old Japanese uh, Irish folklore literature expert who was on the program. And so this Japanese woman was actually educating Irish, you know, Irish people about their own country. It was just unbelievable. And so then vice versa, you know, we had a Japanese artist making a composition of Ireland. We had Irish artists giving the music and Japanese people could listen. And so it was really beautiful. And I do think, I mean, it exhausted me. It was my first time to even try or produce something like this in an online event. So I had to take a few weeks off to decompress. I think if I was going to do it again, I got to find a sustainable way to to do it and have the team around me to execute, you know, as well as the funding too. We got to find some mechanisms there. And obviously nobody has any money right now, but I think there are some creative ways that you could, you could do this moving forward. And maybe we could do something like every quarter instead of every month. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of potential. And if anyone's listening and they want to get in contact with Jessica about it, please do. <clears throat> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We are we are talking with a lot of people about where could this go, as well as you know, let's let's just face it. I mean, next next year, and if we look at St. Patrick's Day in March, uh, probably a lot of the parades and events that people were planning even here for Japan are not going to happen. So, what could we do online through content or, or virtual experiences um, to replicate that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plant some more seeds, Jessup. Plant some more seeds. Yeah, there we go. Uh, I'll keep watering. I think those seeds have been planted. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to keep watering. And then there are other seeds that I want to hopefully blossom as well. <laughs> so I guess then to maybe start to wrap up um, yeah. this interview, it is now your last month with CWW. Um, it- in it terms is. of you, you being officially employed um, and on their payroll situation mm-hmm. that many, many people are facing in the travel industry. Yep. I'd like to know how you're feeling, how you're approaching this and what you think your plan is for the next couple of months, at least. Yeah. If you that, have that, one. Yeah, that is kind of the sad reality. Two more weeks, but... um. No, you know, I'll still be in touch with them and stuff. So what I've, you know, what I've started doing is, you know, like right here, the podcast. Uh, I've been writing articles. I've been pr- producing videos. And I've got a, my hands on a lot of things, trying to brand myself and, and stay close to what's happening daily and weekly in both travel and tech. And so I do hope to stay in or connected with travel as I move forward, uh, probably with a, a technical or a technology element to it. So, you know, let's see. I'm talking with some people right now about moving forward, whether that's short term or long term, how that's going to play out. Um, I just really think that no one can see that far ahead. <laughs> mm. Everyone now, I think, has accepted the reality of it's going to be another year before the travel industry can really restart reboot before we can make any uh, real predictions. So, you know, we're hearing things weekly uh, what's changing. And so everyone has to be a bit fluid. I hope I can uh, 
add value wherever I do land next, or if I don't land anywhere, maybe kind of floating between projects or companies or, or I don't know, we're building, uh, you're buying houses and I'm building the ecosystem around it, or if we're inheriting boats or airplanes, let's just see. Um, I think it's a really exciting time and I should probably be depressed, but uh, I'm actually not. <laughs> uh, I kind of feel like, all right, like there's a lot that can be done. And so, like you said, I think uh, I've planted enough seeds and uh, let's see what happens moving forward. Great. Well, we'll be able to keep keep track of what's happening over the course of this podcast. So, hey, you know what? You, if we get a if we get a great sponsor to this this podcast, maybe I can just uh, keep sitting here with you and paying the bills and uh, yeah, sleep yeah. easy. <laughs> Let's see. So, I think that's a good segue into our sponsorship segment. So, we'll take a break and then we'll be back to wrap up and talk about. Uh, what we're looking forward to in the next week ahead. Great. So this is where you, yes, you, Mr. and Mrs. Sponsor, could be if you'd like to be heard by our faithful audience. We don't expect much, In fact, we're looking to give companies and organizations as much love as we can for free during our discussions. But also, we want to provide this section of the broadcast for anyone who wants to show their support for our show, as well as promote their products and services as they like. If you'd like to get involved, shoot us a message on our Anchor page at www.anchor.fm backslash where did travel go with hyphens alternatively if you're a company or an individual that wants to be a silent supporter there's the option to give a monthly donation of one five or ten dollars by hitting the support button on our anchor page And we're back and praying for a sponsor. (laughs) Yes, we are. They will come. Seeds are planted. They will come. They will come eventually. And um, for now, let's wrap up today's episode. Um, For the next week, um, I am planning on spending a little bit of time learning how to make uh, video material. So I'm going to try and learn a new skill in the next week. When I was up in Ibaraki this week we we checked out three old houses in different areas and I'd like to use the footage that I filmed to produce something Uh, the idea is if we do end up getting a property and doing a bit of renovation work on it we'll be able to turn it into a YouTube video or a YouTube channel maybe try and turn that process itself into a small online business. So I need to get the ball rolling on that and I need to, to learn how to actually produce that video stuff. So, you know me, I don't know anything about tech. So this is, (laughs) this is really new to me. No, this is the whole point of the podcast, like showing people, I mean, we've never done a podcast before either. And uh, you know, here we are, I had never produced the online event. So I think, you have to be an example for the rest of people. So I, 
man, I can't wait to see what you produce. Um, I also do have a contact at YouTube as well. I can set up that meeting. He's the head of content creation APAC. So again, the connections will <laughs> the connections are there and I will make sure to get you on your way. Brilliant. I mean, I'm going to have to make sure I uh, my content's quite professional maybe before that introduction. No, no, no. We got we to gotta start from the bottom, work our way up. You know, we don't want to start the peak, Laura. We want to start in that valley and work our way up, remember? And, and go, yeah, we need to ride the journey up, not start at the top and fall on. So, yeah, that's my main plan. And then also we've got quite a lot of thinking to do with regards to, you know, the lifestyle change and, you know, can I really do this and how much money realistically is a good amount to invest at the minute so yep. I've got a lot of thinking to do as well as learning my new skill okay awesome how about so, you uh for me there's a bunch there's a hodgepodge of appointments that I have this week um I won't get into the details right now but uh I will be going to the beach actually in just a few hours I'm going to head down to uh Kamakura and Enoshima area uh, boys weekend for a couple of days. So looking forward to that little bit of micro travel there. Um, yeah, that's, that's about it. You know, there's not, I think it, I wrote an article this week that kind of sums up how I'm feeling and where my head is. And it says, uh, the title of the article is what travel feels like right now. The travel industry right now is like a bowl of oatmeal and <laughs> it sounds ridiculous. I mean it sounds ridiculous, but I don't know why I sat down the other night uh, thinking about what I'm going to write about. And this came out of my head. I typed it and I'm like, oh, my God, you're you're going down a real rabbit hole, Jessup. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go with it. And so the article actually does uh, have some substance to it, just like oatmeal does. <laughs> no, pun, no pun intended. I actually found a lot of similarities between oatmeal and travel, ironically. So I will put a link. I will put a link in the podcast description where you can go read about uh, the relationship between travel and oatmeal. A little bit of humor, Please do. a little bit of travel for the uh, humor for the week. But actually, I do bring up a few uh, relevant, serious points in there too that are worth reading. So uh, go read that. I will try to. Uh, get my head right for next week i am going to be writing about uh back to tech um about people uh how technology will not let me try that again how technology will not save travel but people will um and i'm going to write about the relationship of people and travel and then how people working in technology are actually going to help pave the way forward so look forward to that next week Oh, good. I also look forward to reading that. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have actually a lot of links in this episode. Uh, so you can go to anchor.fm backslash where did travel go all hyphenated. Um, you can find all of these episodes there. And in the description, we will have links to all of the references that we've uh, talked about today. Fantastic. And that just about wraps us up. And uh, we look forward to Seeing you all again next week. All righty. Fantastic, Laura. I think we're getting pretty good at this. Not too bad, eh? Not too bad. <laughs> all right, Laura. Well, uh, have a good weekend, and I'll talk to you next week. You too. Enjoy the beach. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.